Welcome to the Unmade Podcast. I'm Tim Burrows. Today's guest has one of the most impressive resumes in global publishing. Andrew Jaspin may be best known in Australia as the founder of The Conversation and a former editor of The Age. But in the UK, he was as well known for editing big mastheads, including The Observer, The Scotsman and The Big Issue, among others. Now he's back with another Australian launch, 360 Info. Like the conversation, it has a foot in the world of academia, but with a different model. Andrew, welcome along. And let's start there. Now, you strike me as one of the few editors who's also got the commercial chops to launch a profitable publishing venture if they wanted to, yet you're going the not-for-profit route again. Why? Well, Tim, first of all, it's really good to be talking to you again. We've known each other for a while in Australia, I think pretty well around the time Umbrella started. Um, can I just say that, um, and, and I'm saying this in all honesty, uh, the question you've just asked me is the same question that my wife asks me every time I do one of these. <laughs> <laughs> she keeps saying, why can't you do something that's going to actually make some money? Because uh, <laughs> I, I tend to go for the not-for-profit. So, let me let me kind of unpack that a little bit. Um, if I wanted to do this as a for profit, which I could have done, um, I would have had to raise substantial sums of money. Um, in this case, um, we have five million uh, Australian to to uh, to last us three years. Although we do hope to uh, raise more money. Um, now, to go and raise five million on on the money markets, particularly if you go to venture capitalists. They expect a couple of things, as you know. One is a is a good return, and two is to probably flip the company in between three to five years, and then for them to exit and sell it on to somebody else. Um, so that's problem number one. It puts a very high bar on you having to perform. Uh, the second issue is that if we were for profit, our authors, and we can come on to this later. Um, our researchers working in universities worldwide, they would all, all say, that's fine, we have no problem with you being uh, for profit. After all, all the academic journals, um, you know, the, the Macmillans, the um, Springers, etc., they're all for profits. But what they do is they pay their, their, um, their authors. So they would expect to be paid. So that would kind of double or treble our, our, our burn rate. Um, and it would just make it pretty well unfeasible. So here, the only money I need to raise is to um, hire editors, professional editors and producers. Um, and I just couldn't make this work another way. The other thing is that we're playing in the public good space. And to me, the public interest, public good space requires that you uh, make your information as widely available as possible. And that means no paywalls, uh, the, the ability for information to fro flow freely. And uh, that is the antithesis, in a sense, of a commercial play, which is probably seeking to get uh, either a paywall erected or to run a lot of advertising alongside the content and so on and so forth. So that was the antithesis of what we wanted to do here. So, yes, I'm afraid to say I've gone back to the no, not-for-profit uh, well, and um, my life at home remains a bit of a misery on that front. <laughs> well, we might touch on the funding a little bit more in a moment. But firstly, you know, maybe you can actually explain the concept of 360 Info. Absolutely. So in, in, in a way, Tim, it might be useful to say uh, how this differs from my last um, play, which was The Conversation. So there are certain similarities insofar as we're working with researchers, but where we're different is as follows. The first thing is um, we're trying to look at information in, in the sort of global, um, in, in the global whole, as it were. So not to look at information that begins and ends at the borders. Um, so most, if you take most uh, media, it tends to be about the country in which they operate in. And the reason for that is the business model is around advertising and advertising is sold by territories or countries or, or cities or states. Um, so what happens in, if you take where I live in Australia, um, the, the job of say the Melbourne age was to attract an audience in Melbourne and you sell them Melbourne products. Uh, the sister paper in Sydney, the Sydney Morning Herald will do the same thing. 
And what you do every morning when you're editing one of these papers is you think, what will attract me a Melbourne audience? And it tends to be about issues in, in the city or region. And ones that are outside are dropped. And what I wanted to do was to take a different approach and just say, look, what if we actually tried to approach information without borders? Because there are lots of stories. The obvious ones today are COVID, which knows no borders. Um, you know, uh, carbon dioxide knows no borders. Climate issues knows no borders. The fish in our oceans know no borders, etc. So why don't we look at some of these bigger issues in a different way? The second thing is I wanted to get away from the breaking news cycle because Breaking news in any newsroom, as you'll know, tends to suck the oxygen out of out of that newsroom because everybody rushes to cover what's you know breaking today or or uh, or this week. And what I wanted to do was to refocus um, the the editorial not on breaking news but on the big issues, the big challenges, the most pressing problems the world faces. And I've, I've obviously mentioned the two big ones right now: COVID and climate. But there's also water, food, energy. And then we go into issues like, you know, um, human trafficking, refugees. Um, there's, all, there's a whole bunch of other softer issues as well that, that dominate uh, the kind of most wicked, difficult problems the world faces. So I wanted to look at those, unpack those problems, really try and understand them from different perspectives around the world. And secondly, utilizing the scientific method or the research method is not just to try and understand the problem, but also find a fix to those problems. And again, returning to COVID, if I may, um, when the COVID-19 uh, virus came along, uh, initially nobody knew what it was. And in record speed time, about three months, scientists were able to do um, some, um, some gene genetic, uh, sorry, genomic sequencing tests and actually uh, understand the virus and then gave it a name. And once you understand the nature of the virus, you can then build the antivirus. Um, so I wanted to use a similar approach, which is understand each of those problems in real depth and then say, how are we trying to address them or fix them? So that's something that journalism doesn't tend to do because journalism is, is much more of a reporting game, whereas research has a different timeline, longer timelines, trying to understand and fix sort of world problems. So that's the second big difference. And the third one, if I may, is um, that instead of launching a website, which is a B2C play, uh, what I wanted to do instead- Business to consumer. Is business to consumer. What I wanted instead to do is to become a supplier of content to other people's websites. So that's, that's kind of known as a B2B play. So we are a wholesaler or supplier of content. Other people pick it up. They repackage it, re-edit it as they wish, and then they push it out to their readers or consumers. So we are not in the retail game, which and the retail game for media is one of social media marketing, taking ads on Google, uh, doing search engine optimization, all those kind of tricks to try and get eyeballs to visit your site and not somebody else's site. So what we've put in place instead is we've started off with over 750 content partners around the world who've signed up to take our content and use it much like uh, a, a Reuters newswire or an AAP uh, or an AP. And they just take a feed, they see our content, they pick up what they want, they can use it as, they, as, as it suits them and bingo, off you go. Well, let's take a hypothetical piece of content then. Um, could you maybe just talk us through the stages, you know, right from kind of conception and commissioning through to the stages that piece of content would do in order to then and end up on a publication somewhere? Okay, so it's a really important question, but um, I, I have to unpack it for you because it's quite a complex issue. So again, I wanted to rethink the entire supply line for information, as it were. So what we do in terms of ideas is... Um, as you and I will have done when, when we lead a, um, a morning conference or whatever, is the people sitting around the room would, would sort of talk about what they've read overnight or what they've seen in their specialist areas and report into the editor. And we'll all sit around the table and go, okay, let's do this, let's not do that, and let's try and move on that story immediately and push the other ones back to later in the day and so on and so forth. So I've taken a much more circuitous or, or the slow route towards uh, content creation. So 
The first thing we do is, I don't know if you're familiar with the Sustainable Development Goals, there are 17 of them. Yes. Um, so w- what we're working towards is having what we call a consultative or reference panel for each one of those 17, which um, the people who really understand each one of those um, those, those problem areas. Um, and we draw them from Global North, which are the richer countries, and Global South, the, the developing countries, to get a balanced view of it. So we go to them um, with an idea. We say, okay, we'd like to look at, you know, whatever. Um, and they come back to us. For example, the one we're working on now is how do we address bushfires or wildfires around the world? So what you do initially is you, you say, this is what we're thinking of doing. They come back and say, you're looking at the wrong uh, angle here. You need to look at this and you need to speak to X and so on and so forth. So we then move from an outline brief, as we call it, to an agreed brief, which is where we've consulted with people, we've got the ideas, sometimes they give us the names of people to go to. And then the next thing is having agreed on what we're going to cover, we then go and seek people to write on the subject. Um, And the authors that we use must have a, an accredited uh, uh, post with a with a university, um, and the reason for that, by the way, is that we want people who have been screened, as it were, by each university, and people who have to sign up to all sorts of research codes of conduct as well. So that's part of our sort of test to make sure these people really know what they're saying and have deep uh, research expertise. So once we go and find those people, then we write them a note, say we'd like um, you to write X number of words uh, by a certain deadline, and we remind them this is not an opinion website, so we're not looking for your opinion. We want everything to be research and evidence-based. And once we've set those deadlines, uh, we chase them up. We give them about a week to 10 days to write. We get the content in. We re-edit it. Um, into essentially a Reuters style because we're operating like a a newswire. So again, we're not interested in first-person accounts with, you know, their voice. It's a newswire, neutral voice. Um, When the content is ready, it's sent back to them because we can't publish without an author sign-off. And once they've agreed to it, bingo, out it goes. Um, And And, the last bit is everything everything is, everything else just going to say is released under embargo to our 758 Uh, end users. And the reason for that is we like to give them three or four days to be able to read our content um, and then decide how they want to use it and then push it out themselves. And the the style of the content, would it sit, and I'm thinking, say, for instance, it ends up in a in a newspaper masthead, whether that's in print or online, would it be likely to sit more naturally as a news article or as a feature, do you think? Uh, as a news feature. Um, so one of our biggest users is the Press Trust of India. And the editor-in-chief there said, look, this is absolutely wonderful because we're very good at breaking news and we we run a lot of opinion, but what we don't have is news features. And he suggested, which is what we've done now, that we release this content on a Thursday or Friday because he said the Friday and the weekend papers tend to have more space to carry features uh, and that's the space we're playing into. Um, so slightly longer, but at the end of the day, we operate under Creative Commons License 4, which is called a remix license, which means that they can take our content, much as you would take Reuters, for example, and just use as much or, or as little as you want. You can just take the first paragraph, you can take the whole the whole thing um, to whatever suits the, uh, the outlet's um, appetite for, for, for the story. Now that's interesting. As a bit of a side note, I remember in the day, back in the days with Mumbrella, where we used to take a lot of uh, the conversations content. Sometimes you were a bit nervous if you did need to sort of reangle it a bit just to make it more relevant for our audience. And I, I, I always felt under Creative Commons that I probably wasn't supposed to. No. So it's it's interesting that you have a different um, sort of license this time round. Yes. So that's that's called a no derivative license. So it means you cannot change anything. You have to keep everything as it is. That's the requirement for the for its use. Whereas we operate under license four, it's a different one, which which is called a remix license, which allows our end users to, you know, to to edit it. Now, 
I have to tell you, there is a risk in all that because they can edit it in a way that the author wouldn't be happy. But if you think of Reuters, um, everything comes from Reuters, you know, carries the author's byline and, and quite, I mean, very rarely do newspapers or outlets use the entire Reuters, you know, 800 or 1,000 words on something. It tends to be cut back to whatever they've got space for. Yeah, so um, operating the way we do, which is under license four, where people can remix, does uh, add some risk insofar as people could actually change some of the meaning uh, as the author intended. However, um, it does make our content much more easy to use and more flexible uh, for whatever spaces that either online or in print people have, have uh, space for. And something else, I suppose I find myself thinking about with, obviously with Creative Commons, as you say, it means that anybody can can republish without needing to pay, uh, sort of pay for it. Um, I think about maybe, I don't know, a competitive situation like Australia, where let's see, there's a, let's say there's a really good piece on water security, for instance, yeah. and both the Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian would love to run it. Um, now, it would be quite unusual for both um, titles to carry the same piece. Do you? How do you think about things like geographic exclusivity? Is is there anything you're working on in that way in terms of who you choose your partners to be? Um, the short answer, Tim, is we don't want to pick favourites, really. So we have no special deals. Everything is under an embargo, strict embargo which means everybody gets at least three days notice because we send them, if you sign up to get our content, they get an email alert which tells them these five or ten pieces will be moved on next day. Um, that gives you three days uh, you know, to, to have a look at it, which means that our end users can you know, use, use that content in a different way or they can remix the content with, you know, a reporter who may want to develop that story and add some bits because it makes it more topical to their region or whatever. Um, but AAP, the Australian Wire Agency, um, operates the same way. They put all their content out. It's all available to all their end users. And, of course, you know, somebody will use it, um, you know, in one city and it'll be used at the same time by a different outlet in another uh, or sometimes two outlets in the same city. So it's those are just the sort of basic rules of a, of a, a newswire. Tell me about your team, the the individuals, the roles, how you're going to be organising them. Yeah, so um, we took a decision from the outset to focus on two areas, um, which in a sense are aligned with the research um with the way in which university uh, researchers con conduct their work. So usually sitting behind most research are very big data sets where you know, people do a huge amount of work to try and understand, as I say, a problem. So we've decided to actually focus on data, uh, data journalism, data visualization, um, and text. So those are the two areas rather than a focus on video, for example. And even our pictures, largely speaking, are generic pictures because, again, we're not a news-breaking site. Um, so we've hired um, a, uh, two data uh, visualizers, one of them with a more focus on data itself, another one on being able to, um, to do the design work around data to turn it into, for example, interactives or graphics or whatever. Um, and we think this is a really interesting area to get into. Um, the second team are really a combination of professional editors and producers. Um, and some of these come from, um, from a background in broadcasting, some in print, some in magazines. Um, so we've got a, actually a very small team to begin with. We, we've started off with a team of nine, um, which is, um, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but Monash University provided the seed funding to to allow the project to to happen, and um, the funding they've given us allows us to hire nine people. Although um, we've just hired again through the two campuses Monash has overseas, one in Malaysia and one in Indonesia, we've just hired one person into Jakarta who starts uh, at the beginning of next year, and two people in Kuala Lumpur. We already have somebody in Delhi. 
So we're we're working well towards uh, a global approach with Delhi, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, Melbourne as our four bases initially, um, and each one of those are people who are have got to be good at ideas, got to be good at commissioning, got to be respectful in the relationships we have with the researchers, um, good at finishing and packaging, and and then. The key person in my in my team is is my deputy, um, who's the editor also of the Asia Pacific uh, um, service because we've got we've got a number of hubs we hope to have, but the Asia Pacific's the first one. Um, and Karis Palmer worked with me at the conversations. She then went to work for Maurice Schwartz and did. You may have seen something called Schwartz Pro, which were newsletters that she led. Um, and she's come back to work with me on on this project. Um, and one of the key things that she likes about this project is the global aspect to it rather than just being another country um, play as it were. Well, you've already alluded to the global aspect a couple of times and it was something I was going to ask about actually was about your ambitions. I mean, it sounds to me like you're very deliberately writing from the beginning around topics and areas that certainly aren't Australian specific, but have more of a kind of global outlook. Yes. Well, one of the interesting things, Tim, is that we sit here in Melbourne and I tried to indicate to you that my our newsroom meetings are not the traditional ones of us sitting around the table and just agreeing what to do, but we, we, we open up the room, as I call it, and bring in people who are not sitting physically around our desk um, to get different aspects. And what was really interesting was we were going to put a package out in January, February around bushfires and wildfires um, because that's the hottest time of the year. And our Delhi editor pointed out that actually that was winter in India um, and it was hot in the <laughs> southern hemisphere and, and cold in the northern. And it just makes you kind of rethink a lot of these issues. Um, and another issue is around, for example, energy and um, when you think of um, solar and wind, which are, uh, which are great in terms of renewables, the real issue is one of um, energy storage so that you can release it when you need it. Well, of course, in Australia, being a rich country, we can afford to build massive Tesla batteries. And we kind of assume, well, why doesn't the rest of the world do the same thing? Well, the answer is that the rest of the world can't afford those kind of batteries at all and have to you know, um, have very different approaches. Um, so the whole idea is to make sure that we don't just have another rich world play, but we do um, offer information which tries to look at problems within the round. Uh, how do these planes in Africa, Latin America, South Asia, as well as Europe and North America and Australia? So it's that kind of different focus, uh, which we built right in from the very beginning in terms of how we approach information. We've touched on funding. Um, when you launched the conversation, you raised uh, 10 million to cover the first three years. This time you've just referred to ab about 5 million. How are you thinking about funding going forwards? Um, presumably once you have momentum and you can show that you're having an impact, that that will be a powerful tool. But is it likely to come from within Australia, do you think? Or, or will, will, will the rest of the funding have to come from global sources? Well, um, again, a very good question because it's something I think about a lot. Um, the short answer is the appetite from uh, foundations and philanthropy in Australia uh, is 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 really um, not uh, attuned to global plays. It, it is more about addressing, for example, um, you know, health issues, mental health issues, education issues, indigenous issues in Australia. Um, and the big funders who are interested in the the sort of global plays tend to be, uh, sadly, in the US, you know, the likes of Rockefeller, Carnegie, Gates, MacArthur, um, or in the UK, the likes of the Wellcome Trust, there's a, a number of others. And there are a number in, in Germany and also in Scandinavia um, and Holland, by the way. There, there are very few of them here. And also the, the foundations don't operate in the same way in in Asia, either South Asia or Southeast Asia. So, um, so I'm kind of looking at, you know, where we might go next for funding. Um, the, um, 
the the issue for the three year funding is to give us time to establish the service. So I'm not too worried. Uh, we've got a three three year runway, as it were. So year one is just about establishing the brand, establishing the service, establishing our customer base. Although they don't pay, um, they uh, we we need to drive loyalty and 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 use of of our service. And then what we will do is in years two and three move towards uh, looking at um, raising more funding, um, but also potentially introducing some services as well, as well, which we might charge for. And we, we haven't yet decided what those might be, but at, at some stage, we're going to have to look at that. Um, the other bit is that, again, going back to the global nature of this, is that um, we do have partners around the world who are very interested in working with us. But unlike the conversation, it won't break down into national services because there is a conversation which... which um, I got going in the UK, the US, Canada, France, um, Spain, and Indonesia. And each one of them has become a sort of, in a sense, almost an independent service for each country. We're not going to do that. What we are looking at is having hubs uh, where we have, um, which, which are also hosted at universities, by the way, in the same way as we're hosted at Monash. Uh, but they will be responsible for raising the money within their region or, or location. Um, we can't use Australian money to help you know, get an, an offshore um, hub established. So um, once we're up and running and we've got those partners in place, uh, I expect they'll be making direct approaches towards you know some foundations in their in their region, um, and potentially each university host might also chip something in towards um, towards setting up the the hub. Now something you. Uh, had to face as a challenge when you launched the conversation it grew and became global was balancing your time with looking overseas and being overseas mm. and then the Australian office as well um and it, it, I think in the end there were there were tensions which in part contributed to you not being with the conversation anymore yeah what, what lessons or thoughts have you got around how you need to organize yourself and your culture and your time to get the most out of you? Um, again, Tim, um, it's something which um, I've sort of had to think about quite deeply over the last um, three years since I left. Um, and I think, um, I mean, each, each, each sort of set of problems um, was probably driven from something slightly different. But at the end of the day, um, I think um, I think I got trapped between trying to do too much, and if I didn't do enough, um, the, the, the 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 global rollout uh, just couldn't have happened as fast as it could. I mean, there are very very few, if you think about it, um, rollouts quite as big and large and global as the conversation managed to do in its first sort of three four years. But what that did was it took me away from um, Australia a hell of a lot. I, I had to raise um, uh, quite a lot of money in the US to get the US going. I had to do the same in the UK. Um, I helped with um, a little bit with uh, Indonesia and with Spain and with France. Um, and, um, and then the other thing in Australia is that we signed up um, – uh, 40, uh, sorry, 39 universities in CSIRO, 40 institutions, all were paying, you know, between 50,000 and 200,000 uh, a year. And I personally had to knock on vice chancellor's doors and try and persuade them to join. And although it sounds easy in retrospect, you think, well, everybody would have joined. I can tell you a lot of them were unsure or didn't want to, but now they've all signed up. And that meant a lot of interstate travel. So the first thing is I don't want to travel as much as I used to. And thank God for COVID in many ways, <laughs> because I can't, you know, so that's a, a discipline which has been forced upon me. But the upside of it is I can now do Zoom calls. And frankly, I have to say, uh, I actually find Zoom to be a wonderful tool because it means I don't need to travel. Uh, people turn up on time. I don't have to hear excuses of people getting caught up with, you know, traffic issues and all that sort of nonsense. It works really well. It's efficient and people have got used to it. And I think it's a great new way of working. 
and anybody concerned about carbon footprint should uh, should really curtail travel. So that's the first thing is is I'm able to spend more time with the team. Um, the second thing I guess is that um, I I have to say and you know I sort of have to take blame for this is I. I didn't hire particularly well. I made some some terrible mistakes in terms of uh, hires, and um, largely speaking, these these were people who had agendas which were different to mine in many ways. Um, and um, I don't want to go into that in too much more detail. But but I was badly let down by certain people. I just thought, you know, I never ever had thought that you would do something like that, um, and. Um, and and then you know the other thing, which is again my fault, was was being distracted by having so many different issues to deal with that you know there were times I didn't handle things as well as I should. So yeah, I mean you know, learned many lessons from that. Um, still feel very disappointed about what happened, but you know what, I've moved on. They can do their thing, which is uh, very much a creature of my own making, and thankfully they are still working very much the way that I set the whole thing up, which leaves me room to introduce a different service, which in many ways is a kind of complementary service. So the conversations are, are largely breaking views services in terms of being opinion about what's in the news cycle, whereas we've parked opinion and we've, and we've parked breaking news for the reasons I explained earlier. And it's opened up a very fertile different area for us, which is that the, the longer read, the more considered approach, um, and uh, trying to address problems rather than just report on problems, which, which to me is like a really interesting new area. Some people call that constructive or solutions journalism. I don't like to use those phrases too much, but that's what we're trying to do. Something strikes me that um, let, let's assume that you're able to develop some really good quality content. Um, in time, that reputation, and I, I hear everything you say about being B2B rather than um, business to consumer, but in time, that reputation, I could see there being an appetite to actually see from the public your raw feed, so to speak. Do you think there will be a moment when you do, even if it's a simple site, just have something where anybody can just take a look at what you're publishing so they can, they can see your whole output in one place? Yes, I mean, that, that, that's a possibility, Tim. But if you think of Reuters, which is a, a massive business, um, they don't have really a public-facing site as such. I mean, there is, there is a Reuters site you can go to, and there is stuff there. But all the content is locked up for its subscribers and users, and, and, um, and they don't particularly want to be a site that you know, attracts lots of readers because at the end of the day, um, their their um, subscribers um, are the people who who want to retail their content, and they don't want to set up in competition to you know their own subscribers. So in Australia, for example, um, say Sydney Morning Herald, the Age uses Reuters content. Well, if Reuters set up a public facing website, people you know the Age and Sydney Morning Herald people say, well, we're not going to take your content because it's already freely available on your website. And do you think? Um... Is there any likelihood that you'll find yourself competing with the conversation when it comes to wanting to sign up an, an expert to write a piece for you? Um, Tim, there is the potential for that. Um, um, but let me tell you, in Australia alone, I just happen to have these numbers, there are about 100,000 academics. And the conversation is used about... Um, 25,000, so about 25% have already been used. 75,000 haven't been and probably never will be. But even of those 25,000, um, all those academics um, write for many different channels. You know, many of them will write occasionally directly for a newspaper or they'll appear on TV or radio. They'll write for overseas publications. Um, so the conversation doesn't have the complete right to utilize those researchers alone. Um, and the other thing, as I indicated to you before, is our content is quite different because the conversation, which is the model I set up, tries to riff off, you know, that day's breaking news and do, in a sense, commentary to sort of say, oh, let's, let's explain the budget today or let's explain, you know, a plane going down or whatever. 
we're doing something quite different. We're actually focusing on, as I said to you, sustainable development goals, world's biggest problems, and looking at things in a quite different way. Well, finally, I'd, I'd uh, be wasting the opportunity if I didn't ask your more general view on Australia's media. As I was saying, you're a former editor of The Age and you've edited many other mastheads in other parts of the world as well. Um, mm. Quite a wide question, but what do you see as the state of the media as we head towards 2022? Well, Tim, I'm looking at the clock and it tells me that we've nearly spent 40 minutes on <laughs> what I've done now. If you've got time for another 40 minutes, I'd love to talk to you about it because it is, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a really extremely important issue and it goes to the heart of what I think um, is a real problem in Australia, which is that uh, we have probably one of the most concentrated media ownerships in the world. When I came to Australia to edit The Age in 2004, there was Fairfax, um, there was uh, APN, there was um, News Corp, obviously, and channels 7, 9, and 10. But now 9 has gobbled up um, Fairfax, News Corp has gobbled up APN. Um, There's been lots of other um, uh, mergers uh, and consolidation, and you've got even fewer players than than when I arrived in 2004. And I think there's a, a real problem in Australia. I mean, there are large swathes of Australia, as you know, that are just owned by one group. Um, and so it's you take it or leave it. Now, that one group is, is News Corp. Um, News Corp is big, but nine, the nine group now between both nine TV plus, you know, all the, the, the mastheads, by the way, the, there has been one change in development, which is Anti Catalano. Um, he and I, by the way, were both asked to leave Fairfax at the same time. And I went off to do the conversation and now this thing, and he went on to buy out Rural Press and renamed it Australian Community Media. And he's got, uh, I can't remember, 120-odd papers right across Australia, which is an independent play. Um um, but largely speaking, it's been consolidation, consolidation, fewer and fewer voices. And of course, due to combination of, of you know, the, the, the global economy and now COVID, uh, a lot of those groups have, have, you know, delayed and hollowed out newsrooms even further. And there's been a loss of, I think, 5,000 journalist jobs in the last three to four years in Australia. So it's not in a, in a good shape at all. But I wouldn't mind if, if, if I can just to, to, to talk briefly about the advertising side of, of uh, what's happened. So as you probably know in Australia, the, the advertising spend on the media um, tends to be, um, or, or was, I should say, about 10 years ago, about 8 to $9 billion a year. It now stands at more like 10 to $11 billion a year. However, what's happened is that over the last five years, uh, Google and Facebook together have carved out about half of that and now actually take between 60 and 70 percent of that 10 to 11 billion. Um, Google takes a lot more than Facebook and they bill all of that out of Singapore or overseas in low tax uh, um, thresholds. Um, And and, uh, what that's done is actually uh, reduced, hugely reduced, the ability for the Australian media to focus not just on hiring journalists, but you know, to to actually conduct their operations. So there has been a big change in the advertising uh, marketplace, which has led to you know huge structural issues, and those issues um, are being dealt with to a certain extent through the news bargaining code, which which the News Corp papers led the charge on. Um, and largely speaking was about what Rupert Murdoch has always thought, which was that Google was stealing their content and should pay. And that's largely speaking what Google and to a certain extent Facebook are doing now is, is paying them. But it hasn't really gone to towards new entrants or the smaller players. It's really gone to the big, pe- the, the, the big players who had skin in the game to get the government to structure the news bargaining code in a way that, um, in a sense, reinforce the existing uh, ownership structures. 
Well, I might follow up on Rupert Murdoch in a moment. Um, just one, 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 one question first on your your previous point, because I, you know, I totally recognise what you say about the dominance of Google and Facebook in that ecosystem and the lack of transparency there is as well, particularly with um, Google's control over every stage of it. Um, at the same time, we see Google certainly wanting to be seen as being a a good citizen in journalism you know there's the google news initiative for instance so it so it does put money into the ecosystem um would would you take that sort of money if offered for 360 info or does it compromise you to do so do you think um again a sort of um uh, a dilemma which faces many independent uh, journalists um so let me just comment on the first part of your question. Um, I've been to Mountain View, which is Google's headquarters in, in um, just outside San Francisco. And I've also been to to Facebook's uh, headquarters at Palo Alto and and also their offices in London um, for, both, for both Google and uh, Facebook and also for Google in this country. And um, the... Key issue for Google and Facebook is they see themselves as technology companies first and foremost, and they do not want to be seen as a publisher because if you're seen as a publisher, it kind of changes the nature of the game and they become responsible for content and they can be uh, sued for defamation or libel and all sorts of other things. So what they've done is they've got um, an exclusion, which is actually written into American law, to be not seen as a publisher, but just a carrier of other people's information. So what that meant is that they had to strenuously avoid putting money into anything editorial. Um, so when I would go and speak to Google and Facebook, they would say, look, we can help you with help with, for example, developing your site better, with giving you tools to optimize readership, with giving you data tools, with giving you free access to, you know, G Suite uh, of services and so on and so forth, but we can't give it to editorial. So that used to be their um, their approach. And that sort of held for, I don't know, let's say five, five to ten years. But now, particularly in Australia, because of the campaign that News Corp led in this country and a compliant government who listened largely to what News Corp say, um, they have managed to uh, force, in a sense, uh, Google and and Facebook to actually start putting money into journalism, which is something they've always stood against. And I think, um, and I think they're still trying to test the waters on that. You know, whether it works or not, what could be the downside? The um, second part of your question was, would would we take the money? And the short answer answer, without being churlish, is 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 yes, we would, but like all funding arrangements and agreements, uh, Google or Facebook, were they to give us money, would have to accept that we remain an independent voice, that they cannot have any say over what we uh, commission. They can't ask us to lay off certain areas and cover certain areas, all of that. And as long as those um, uh, agreements were in place, which is the same, by the way, for any foundation or anybody else that would want to fund us, uh, as long as that was the case, it was clear that we or I retained overall and ultimate control of the service, then the answer is we, we probably would take that their, their uh, funding. And you touched on News Corp, uh, the Rupert Murdoch-led organisation. Earlier in your career, you worked for the Times and the Sunday Times, which are mm-hmm. a, a part of the empire. Um, how yeah. do you how do you think of as the 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 company? Because I I always feel it's 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 kind of painted a bit in noughts and ones. Either they're everything that's wrong with journalism, or they're everything that's right with journalism. And usually, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, how do you think of the organization? So, um, first of all, is I think the professional standards at News Corp are probably amongst the highest I've come across in terms of just the basic craft of running newsrooms, discipline newsrooms, chasing stories, chasing exclusives, um, and doing a really good job at packaging, selling. Uh, advertising their, you know, their their brands, 
and um, and actually being very strong players in in every market that they operate in. The downside is it's agenda driven journalism. So there is there is a clear Murdoch agenda, um, which you sign up to when when you join a Murdoch organization, and there are certain things which are you know which are subjects which you know you know if you work for any Murdoch outlet is kind of the the areas that they support and the areas they don't like. And I remember when I joined the Sunday Times, Andrew Neal was was my editor, and he really spelt this out. You know, and he called the way he did good and bad was he called um, sectors of Australia, either uh, sorry, of the UK, either sunset industries or sun sunset, sorry, sunrise or sunset. So, for example, he hated the coal the coal miners, so he called them a sunset industry. He hated the BBC, so that was a sunset industry. Whereas the Sunrise were, you know, the the new players that didn't have unions and and um, you know all the areas that they kind of you know ideologically agreed with, I guess. Um, now none of this is really spelt out, and you know I hear so often. I every t- I laugh every time when I hear, you know, people like Robert Thompson, who's the CEO of News Corp, say. You know, no editor is ever rung out by Rupert and told what to do. Well, Rupert doesn't operate that way. Rupert very carefully chooses editors. I don't mean him personally, although he does at the, the most, you know, senior positions. But broadly speaking, Rupert's lieutenants make sure that they choose people who are one of us. And that's that's the term they use. You're either one of them or one of us. And then once you become anointed as a, a Murdoch, um, you know, editor or whatever, you know what the line is. And there are meetings once, twice, three times a year where all the executives gather and they hear from Murdoch and his thoughts about the world, you know, what's up, what's down. And then they go away and just make sure that their papers, in a sense, align with that. Um, and where people disagree, you know, they get short shrift and they have to leave. Um, And you hear this over and over again. So, for example, on climate issues, anybody who kind of used to, although there's been a a change, as you probably know, in Australia in terms of a a recognition that climate change actually is real. But previously to that, it was was one of suppressing the, the climate, the real climate science story. And so every paper took the same line and, and, and so goes on and on. I think you know most of this, Tim. But, but as, a, as I say, it's a strongly driven, purpose-driven, ideologically driven organization with extremely good professional journalists and editors who deliver on that remit. And as such, they're very robust players in every market that they operate in. When it comes time to write Rupert Murdoch's obituary, which hey, you know, could be another 10 or 15 years away. Um, <laughs> uh, will, uh, if you were asked, would you say that his contribution to journalism was a, a net positive or a net negative? Oh, um, I would I would come down probably as a net negative. Um, and um, I don't mean that from the point of view of what he did on the Adelaide Advertiser. You know, he clearly did a good job. But what he did, and I watched closely because you alluded to it earlier that I to the Times and Sunday Times. I worked on those papers, and I saw these papers um, in many ways um, become diminished as as the kind of standard bearers of the highest quality journalism um, in, in the UK. And then when I look at what Fox News has done, and I mean I think Fox News has been probably the most divisive, destructive force in America. Um, but Rupert uh, really saw an opportunity because the four other major um, uh, broadcasters um, all held to a sort of narrow, broadly liberal viewpoint. And he saw an opportunity for something that was, you know, way off on the right that would bring in, you know, the rednecks and others. And he saw that opportunity um, and he just went for it. And he's made a huge amount of money. I mean, Fox, I think, makes more money than anything else for him these days. Um, but the downside is uh, the destruction that it's created uh, in American society. And, and you speak to any American just about the impact of it, the polarization, the, the, the anger, the fury, 
uh, and the quality of debate is diminished. And of course, out of all that, uh, we had Trump, who was very much uh, promoted uh, by the Fox organization. Um, and so at the end of the day, do I think the world's a better place, as in better informed? Uh, the answer is probably no, uh, because what the what Trump did and what Fox did was to essentially say there are alternative uh, facts in a sense, you know, there are alternative ways of seeing the world. And that's broken down a broad, um, a broad agreement around facts and evidence. So, you know, the old saying, you're entitled to your opinion, but not to your own facts. Well, that's now changed. People now uh, in, in, the, in at Fox News, particularly in some of the other outlets, uh, say they're entitled to their own facts, alternative facts, and so on and so forth. So uh, I think it's, it's unmade a lot of the best of, uh, of the journalism in the world. Um, and, but I can't lay all the fault journalism there. There is the, the other issue, which is the structural change of, of the big search companies, particularly Google and Facebook, which are, at the end of the day, um, Tim, to be blunt, they're both advertising companies. And what they've done is they've just sucked the advertising out of, you know, what used to be newspapers, radio and television and moved it into search um, and all the advertising associated with that. And that's where the real money is these days. And what's interesting is to see how those things are going to develop because they will develop. And you will see, I think, Facebook and Google morph into different organizations. They will have to take on some form of responsibility for a lot of the damage that's been done, the way it's it's kind of led to um, siloed discussions where you have all the people who are anti-vaxxers talk to each other on that community page and all the people who are uh, who support vaccination speaking in another sort of loop and different echo chambers, et cetera. So these are real, really big societal problems. Um, they are being thought about, they are being addressed at some stage, they will be solved. Um, so I think it's a really interesting period to watch closely uh, for how all this is going to unravel over the next five to 10 years. Well, as you allude to, Andrew, it is a subject we could talk about for, for hours, let alone minutes, but that's where we better leave it for now. My thank you to Andrew Jaspin. Have a great summer break, Andrew. Thank you very much, Tim, and enjoy your Christmas and all the best for 2022. The Unmade Podcast is produced with the enthusiastic support of Abe's Audio. More soon. I'm Tim Burrows. Toodle pip. Unmade.